Welcome, everybody, to a new episode of Escaping the Brave New World. Uh, my name is David Goslin, and I'm here with our new guest, Dr. Quan Le, who is a psychiatrist, Confucian scholar, and most importantly, lover of wisdom. Welcome, Quan. Thanks, Dave. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, so we're continuing on our journey of a rectification of terms, which is something we started last week where our episode was called uh, Apollonians, uh, Prometheans, Dionysians, and Epicureans. And we sort of went through a psychological profile of what each of these types of personalities are uh, in order to, in a sense, get a better sense uh, for ourselves of where we fall in the, the many categories that define, I mean, human nature today, which has become increasingly what is human nature, right? There's so many ways to approach, approach that, which I think comes down to the, uh, a question of epistemology, right? There's so many different theories. And while from day to day, uh, this is what we were talking about last time with Adam Cedia, which is that from day to day, these kind of abstract, seemingly abstract philosophical questions, especially in, in, in times of peace and relative comfort, they seem very remote. But the idea is that when you actually zoom out and you get a macro picture of what society over the ages looks like, the rise and falls of civilizations, you see that the, the image of man, the dominant idea of what human nature is, has a direct bearing on how that civilization unfolds and behaves and its ultimate fate. Uh, so it's no small question. And today our episode is called Exiting the Cave. Timocrats, Democrats, oligarchs, and tyranny. So these are the categories that we're going to look at, which come from Plato's Republic, uh, which despite all the, you know, there's all layer and layer of commentary, age after age, year after year, scholar after scholar. Uh, and a lot of it tends to obscure the essential truths that Plato was getting at, I think. And I think today, if we look at the United States and Western civilization, if you look at Plato's categories, he quite succinctly predicts the kind of decline and degeneration that occurs when we lose sight of certain higher ideas and a, a vision of what uh, true human nature is right? and what real human beings should be striving for, which is namely goodness, truth, and beauty. So I guess our show is what happens when we don't pursue that. And uh, how, do we, how, do we, how do we get out of that? How do we get out of these binds and, and find some higher ground to transcend it all? And yeah, I think that we can just start the conversation there. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, I would just read one quote by Confucius and then allow you maybe, Quan, to just describe what these basic categories are. You, you have your own uh, hexagon, uh, hexagram, right, where you kind of define the categories. So you can kind of just go through how you view each category. And ultimately, I think people, as people are listening, they should ask themselves, uh, where do they fall in these categories? So Confucius, in his rectification of names, says a superior man 
in regard to what he does not know, shows a cautious reserve. If names be not correct, language is not in accordance with the truth of things. If language be not in accordance with the truth of things, affairs cannot be carried on to success. When affairs cannot be carried on to success, proprieties and music do not flourish. When proprieties and music do not flourish, punishments will not be properly awarded. When punishments are not properly awarded, the people do not know how to move hand or foot. Therefore, a superior man considers it necessary that the names he uses may be spoken appropriately, and also that what he speaks may be carried out appropriately. What the superior man requires is just that in his words, there may be nothing incorrect. I, some, I see this as, I mean, you can't solve a problem if you can't put a name on it. So today, Western civilization is in a deep crisis. And I think it, it warrants this deeper philosophical journey. Which, whether in the case of Confucius or Plato, uh, both of them emerged in a time of great crisis, right? Plato with the 30 tyrants, Confucius with the warring states period. So philosophy was a very practical question. It was actually the most vital question if we were actually going to figure out how did we get here and where do we go? What do you think, Juan? Well, I think that uh, the quote you chose is absolutely awesome because it's a kind of uh, epistemological summary or to be precise, it's a kind of uh, practical political repercussions of bad or false epistemology, okay? Because he was speaking of behavior, right? He was speaking of language of the right words, of the impact on social affairs, of the impact on uh, the success of the affairs and with the impact on the absence of uh, Floor of uh, success about the music and Lee, which is ceremony, but it's much more than ceremony, meaning much more a uh, the right behavior and the right attitude in society in accord with the eternal laws or with natural laws, as you prefer. Mm -hmm. So uh, I would say that, uh, you know, that I have the uh, maybe a certain proclivity to make rapprochement between Greek philosophy and Chinese philosophies. So mm. I, I would say that it's a kind of a very small nutshell of what Plato himself wrote in the Republic, okay? Because uh, uh, maybe for our public, I would like to take two minutes to talk about the hexagram with its lower trigram and its upper trigram making the rapprochement with the Plato categories or Plato lexicon, if you prefer. Uh, I think that everyone saw the famous six lines from the famous I Ching, and uh, everyone probably remember that you have six lines, one after the others, broken lines or plain lines, right? Uh, I'm not here tonight to talk about uh, divination. I'm here tonight to talk about uh, philosophy and political philosophy and epistemology. 
So uh, the lines are number one, two, three for the first three lines from bottom up. And that's the first trigram. The second trigram is number four, five, six, right? And the first trigram or the lower trigram is called the animal kingdom. Hmm. For, for Plato, the animal kingdom is called doxa or opinion. Okay, mm. and for Plato, uh, for Confucius, the upper trigram is the divine kingdom, and for Plato, it's episteme for science or right knowledge or simply knowledge. We understand that when we say knowledge without precision, it means right knowledge. So uh, that's why we are speaking of epistemology, right? Because uh, the upper trigram of the divine kingdom is precisely that kingdom of right knowledge. And epistemology is the discipline, the science, or simply the journey of the soul from the animal kingdom to the divine kingdom. Mm -hmm. uh, let's start with, uh, sorry, keep on. No, go on. Okay, so let's start with Confucius because Confucius is easier to remember, okay, because uh, he simply used uh, uh, symbolic ages, okay, for the six lines. First, for the uh, animal kingdom or lower trigram, uh, the first line is the symbolic age of 15. The second line is the symbolic age of 30. And the third, the symbolic age of 40. Hmm. For the upper trigram, you have the symbolic age of 50, 60, and 70. And for each of those lines correspond a level of understanding of reality, okay, of inner reality and of outer reality. And Plato would use exactly the same journey, if you want, and that's why I call Plato and Confucius the two spiritual brothers living at the two ends of the world island, okay? Mm -hmm. For the maniacs of geopolitics like me, the, the expression world island is not a strange one, okay? Because the world island is precisely that tricontinental mass formed by Africa, Europe, and Asia. And of course, Plato living in Greece is at the western end of the world island and Confucius in China at the eastern end of the world island. Mm -hmm. And coming back to Plato, uh, for what Confucius called the lower trigram and, and Plato, the doxa kingdom, a kingdom of opinions, he would call, he would place three kinds of man corresponding to three kinds of understanding and three kinds of behavior. Uh, general behavior and political behavior, of course, because we all understand that political behavior is a subset of general behavior, of course. Mm. And we can even ask the question, can we escape politics as a human? I don't think so, because I think that when two humans are together, two humans being are together, you have a relation, okay? And when you have a relation with two, three, four, five, six, or three billion, you have politics, yeah. necessarily, okay? So Plato said that in his Republic, there are as many kinds of states as there are kinds of men, right? That the, the different kinds of states are derived from the different kinds of characters of men, which seems- Exactly. So there are uh, different characters and there's always gonna be a mixing, right? There's never a pure 
uh, abstraction of just one, but they're there. They're, they're these, these uh, particular kinds of identities. And based on that identity, there's a whole panoply of different kinds of behaviors, ideas, and things that they'll do. And having a profile of this is, uh, is very useful if we're actually going to get somewhere and navigate yes. it. Absolutely. I even use a very grandiose expression for the, the hexagram or uh, the uh, doxa episteme carpo, if I may say so. I call it a psychocosmogram. Okay. A psychocosmogram, because uh, we are dealing with psychological uh, realities. Mm. And, but those psychological realities will have an impact on this political, social, and uh, universal realities, okay? Because uh, as you said, in a city, you have all kinds of people with all kinds of epistemological development, of course. Yeah. But as in an army, the officers have the responsibility to give leadership, okay? And, uh, and one of the, I would say maybe the, main responsibility of the leadership team is to inspire respect and confidence. Because if you don't inspire respect and confidence, you will not be able to influence the people in the animal kingdom. Okay? Because uh, let's not forget that uh, in the natural laws, natural laws recognize that there is a natural hierarchy. Okay? And you know that I, I often uh, argue by etymology. Hierarchy comes from two Greek words, eros and ake, meaning the command or the power of the sacred. And that sacred is precisely that natural laws. It mm -hmm. means that in, in nature, and humans beings are part of nature, but we have the capacity to go to the outmost development of that nature, meaning the divine kingdom. And we have the responsibility precisely to uplift everyone to the divine kingdom as much as possible. Because ultimately, the most powerful human organization is a republic composed of mostly gentlemen. Okay? Uh, we can fantasize that there could be a society only formed by Democratic, true theocratic man and aristocratic man and philosophical man. That would be the city of God on earth, if you, I may borrow St. Augustine expression. Right. Okay. Uh, and precisely, I would do stuff in the reverse. Instead of going by starting at the animal kingdom, I will start with the divine kingdom or episteme for Plato, okay, uh, knowledge. Three, four, five, uh, not three, four, five, but four, five, six, sorry. At the lowest level of the divine kingdom, we have the Timocratic man. Okay, it's not a usual word, so I wouldn't spell it. T I M O C R A T I C, Timocratic. And Timocratic comes from Timos. Timos means reward. Okay, but it's not, it's not, uh, it's not physical reward, it's psychological reward. Because a democratic man is motivated by honor and by justice, okay? So that kind of man or women, okay? So we all understand that when I say man, it includes women. 
And uh, for those people who will uh, be uh, in the woke culture, saying man doesn't exclude the women because uh, the, the word for man in Latin is via, via. Okay, so when I say man, it's mankind. Okay, so it, it's, I am speaking of men and women. So the democratic man then is the man that will act because he wants to establish justice and honor. That's the first level of the divine kingdom. And beauty is a fancy name for justice, okay? Because in the dimension of beauty, of course, you have physical beauty, you have beauty of music, you have beauty of the movement of the planets and so on. But justice is also in the domain of beauty, okay? Uh, I think in English you can say that too, but in French, I, I know that in French we can say un beau geste, for example, okay? A beautiful gesture. A beautiful gesture means a right gesture, a right attitude, a right decision, a right... Uh, uh, movement, etc. Okay, so hmm. when it's right, it's beautiful. So justice is in the domain of beauty. So the first level of the divine kingdom is precisely beauty or justice. After that, you have the aristocratic man, and aristos means the best in Greek, of course. And the best uh, is characterized by love, okay, by agape. And that is a very special kind of love that is uh, pervasive, all encompassing. Okay, it's uh, not only it's when including the usual romantic love, but it's first and foremost a love for understanding of reality. Okay, inner reality, outer reality, my reality, the reality of the other human beings that I interact with, etc. Mm -hmm. So that agape uh, will push us to a special kind of mental attitude called dialecticon by Plato or agape by the Christians, okay? Uh, meaning uh, a playful exploration, okay? The, the Greek terminology would put more emphasis on the intellectual dimension. The Christian word for that, agape, will sure. put more emphasis on the care the other okay but you know perfectly well that you cannot care you can cannot take care of someone in a good manner if you don't understand that person or if you don't love that person okay so there's no contradiction those words which seems not to be on the same domain are on the same domain right and uh you wanted to say something okay, I'll let, I, yeah no i have a lot of uh thoughts finish finish your uh yeah no but it's fine uh, go with all the categories okay. uh philosophy so, right? yeah. okay so those uh, then those aristocratic men uh are nourished and nurtured by that agape by that dialectical and uh, because of it those people have a proclivity to favor or to be motivated by creativity, by inventivity, by discovery, okay? Mm -hmm. So uh, the Plato would call the democratic man the fierce class, meaning the man who will protect the city. Uh, they, uh, the obvious example uh, is the military, of course, but you don't have to be necessarily in the military 
being a democratic man. Okay, you can offer the protective function in many roles by the city. If you are a doctor, for example, you can have a protective role, okay, even if you're not a military man, okay. But if you are a doctor that would invent uh, uh, cures, uh, invent treatments, okay, you would be an aristocratic man in your function of a doctor. So uh, it's uh, uh, you can have the same social role, but functioning at different level of epistemological development. Mm-hmm. And uh, and after the aristocratic man, of course, you have the philosophical man. And what is the philosophical man? Well, the philosophical man is the level of truth. Okay, so we said that the democratic man is at the level of beauty of justice. The aristocratic man is at the level of goodness, which is another name for agape. And the philosophical man is at the level of truth. So he's, he's motivated by creating precisely the democratic man and the aristocratic man, okay? Mm-hmm. It would be the first of the uh, kind of man present in the divine kingdom or in the city of God, if you want. Give us some names of some, uh, what you would consider, who you would consider uh, philosophical men, philosophical kings. Oh, uh, well, why not Plato and Confucius? Perfect. <laughs> good, good. Uh, I have a I have a thought, but I wanted to let you finish your your thought. Okay, maybe I will take two minutes to finish with the lower trigram okay. or right the yeah. or the animal kingdom. So lines one, two, three. Absolutely. So, so the animal kingdom is the kingdom with uh, um, a lower knowledge or no knowledge, since Plato called it doxa opinion. Okay, right. so. Uh, the first level, which is the lowest level, is called the democratic man. Okay, so nothing against democracy, okay, as understood by us now in 2022, right? Because demos in the at the time of Plato means the people, but uh, for those uh, who know a little bit of ancient Greek, demos is not really the people; it's rather the mob. Okay. Uh, so, uh, if not the rabble, so uh, demos. So the democratic man is the man motivated by hedonism, uh, so sensual pleasure, but without constraint, without self-discipline or self-mastery. Uh, he would be uh, motivated by tribal affinities, mm. and he would be motivated by lex talionis. Okay, lex talionis is eye for eye tooth for tooth, okay? So by revenge, if you want. Uh, and, and his uh, epistemological level is quite low because his understanding is through senses perceptions, okay? He's not uh, capable or very weak in abstract thinking, in uh, generalization, in playful exploration, in discovery and creativity everything that would characterize the aristocratic man right so reality is very much derived from their own personal experience and feelings about that experience you know they've exactly had experience and they felt good about a certain thing so they're going to assume that because there was a certain positive affectation associated with these images those are good 
and the things where they had negative affectation, well, those are bad. And that's pretty much what their system is, is based on, right? Exactly, exactly. And when I said tribal affinities, it's not, it's not only the tribe in the sense of a small nation, okay? Mm-hmm. It's also uh, people that would think like them, they would not be capable to have a healthy debate with someone not sharing their opinions, okay? Uh, And and tribal in that intellectual sense too, okay? It's not only only tribal in the sense of a small nation. Uh, And that is uh, the first level of epistemological development. And uh, the second level would be the plutocratic man. The plutocratic man is a little bit more advanced in terms of understanding of reality compared with the democratic man, but he's motivated by wealth, power, and profit, okay? So he would be capable to smile to his enemy. He would be capable to be hypocritical if he's, uh, he's talking to someone he doesn't agree with he is capable to smile and to say that uh, his uh, that he will listen to his arguments and so on, but inside his mind and his heart, he's not really open to understand the other. He he's only interested to find a way to take advantage of the other. Okay, since he's motivated by profits, power, and wealth. Uh, the democratic man would uh, admire the plutocratic man, okay? Uh, because uh, he feels that the, the plutocratic man is a little bit more advanced than him. He's capable of tricks and of a certain self-mastery uh, that would be admired rightly by the democratic man, since the plutocratic man is truly a little bit more advanced, epistemologically speaking, than the democratic man. And the last or the most advanced, epistemologically speaking, man of the animal kingdom is called the fake democratic man, okay? Because on the outside, he would have all the outside characteristic of a democratic man if you are not uh, wise enough or bright enough to see that he's fake, you might think that is a true democratic man, meaning a man upholding justice and honor. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm, I think that I don't need well, to... Virtue signaling today sounds like the typification of that, right? They sort of I think... fame, goodness, truth, and beauty. And they shame those who uh, don't, you know, quote unquote, meet the, the perceived... Uh, you know, status of these things. And you see this in religion, you see this in politics, right? They'll always carry this bearing of virtue and goodness, but they're really driven uh, by their self-interest and their tribal affinity at the end of the day. But they'll always frame those things as, you know, a question of, of truth and goodness and virtue. Absolutely. I would say that they're dangerous. Uh, they're very. There's a lot of them. To, they're very dangerous. Well, they are the thinkers of the animal kingdom. Okay, let's not forget that. Okay, so they are the advisor to the plutocrats. Right. So uh, those. Well, I'm sorry to say that. I hope I won't bring problems to you, Dave. 
But when I'm thinking of a fake democratic man, I cannot resist to think to Henry Kissinger, for example, hmm. or to uh, or to Zbigniew new Brzezinski. Right. Okay. Uh, for me, they are the perfect person of personification of the fake democratic man because let's be uh, let's be uh, let's be frank. They might seems very impressive for most people. Right. And I mean, that's the that's that's the problem. Right. Like in, in a sense, they're they're imitators, which is, again, Plato in the I, I'm quite sure it's the 10th book. Right. He uses examples of the, the poets and artists. And, you know, he he provokes everybody by saying, should we allow these people uh, into our republic? Uh, but he really I mean, I think much of the, the Republic is really based on at the end of the day, are we able to make a distinction between what's actually goodness, truth and beauty and what are just imitations, right? Mimesis uh, of these things. And those people who are the best at imitating these things. And in a sense, I mean, there's a lot of psychological reasons perhaps why they'd wanna do that. Sure, self-interest uh, ultimately, but they also haven't done the work, right, of actually uh, working on a, a real epistemological journey, you know, a journey of the soul of unearthing uh, or, or, or wrestling with the deeper paradoxes uh, and questions regarding, you know, the nature of the, what universe are we in? You know, what is the nature of the universe we're in and what's our relationship with that? They don't really care about that, right? They care about their self-interest and advancement in what they see as a game. And the better ones are the ones who are best at imitating uh, the, the upper trigram, right? Imitating the sort of values of the divine kingdom or framing things as values of the divine kingdom. But they're really just animals that are, are, are more clever uh, than the rest of the tribe. And for that reason, they're, they're very dangerous. And, uh, it seems like, yeah, because they can be fooled. They're, they're dangerous also because they can fool people. And so Plato really emphasized how, you know, do we actually, his, the whole Republic, right? He, there, there's a series of thought experiments, right? He has dialogues with different people and he says, well, let's imagine this situation or let's imagine that. And, and this is what you think. So what would you do in this situation? And that's his way of sort of testing the axioms of the people and sort of pushing them into different boundary conditions where you see what they're really made of, right? Especially, you know, if they're in a position of power, that's where you're gonna see how their thinking actually pans out in the real world, because now they're in a position where they can sort of enforce and exert their will on others. So it's, it's no small matter, you know, for, for everybody who is fooled by these people and doesn't have the epistemological development to, uh, to, to, to recognize the imitations because they themselves have not right, gone through the process. Uh, and I mean, this is the eternal struggle, Nespa. Absolutely. And it's, I would like to bring in a, a clinical observation. Uh, you know, uh, uh, the psychopath, uh, are known in, 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 in clinical medicine as people not having the same uh, wiring, the same connection in their brain than what is called a normal person, right? Mm 
Uh, and the true psychopath, which is born. Okay, first I would like to make the distinction between the psychopath and the sociopath. The psychopath is born and the sociopath is made. Okay, the sociopath would be the person that had a very difficult childhood or has been victim of uh, violence, psychological violence or sexual violence or physical violence when very young. And the psychopath is born like that. And because he's born like that, it's very difficult for him to have natural emotional reaction. And he would be uh, in a turmoil, in deep difficulty to identify what he's living as emotions or emotions expressed by others. Mm -hmm. And we were speaking of imitation. The, the bright psychopath, if I, if I may say so, will learn to imitate the emotional expressions of the other people as the sociopath, but at, maybe the sociopath has less problems because he was not born like that, but he was made. So he has a certain connection to natural emotions. Right. Why do I bring that medical uh, clinical considerations? It's because it's linked to the idea of imitation. Okay. Uh, the natural democratic man, uh, plutocratic man, and fake democratic man would imitate because they are not epistemologically developed enough. But the psychopath and the sociopath would imitate because they don't even have the animal machinery to act like normal human beings. Mm. Mm. I mean, the, the, the first question, I mean, that comes to mind. So do you think that's really the pro like, do you think that's the main problem when we're talking about statecraft, right? Like Plato talks about uh, how there's also a degeneration that occurs. And he talks about even the transition, right? How does the democratic man uh, become a democratic man or an oligarchical man, right? And the different, like there is some moving of, of between the ranks and whatnot. So it's not like purely, uh, it's not predetermined, but there are these basic psychological profiles that people will sort of assume. Um, yes, uh, sorry to interrupt you, Dave, because I want to stress that you said something very important when speaking of Plato, okay? Uh, because uh, you know that nowadays, uh, the plutocracies precisely uh, are very eager to make Plato appear as a fascist. Yeah. Uh, and what you said is major, okay? For Plato, there's an open invitation for everyone to upgrade their epistemological level, okay? So uh, it's not something that you are condemned to, okay? Uh, you can work on yourself and you can upgrade your understanding of reality, okay? Contrary to Aristotle, who was the true fascist and who thought that some were are born to be master and others are born to be slaves. Yeah. And I mean, the perfect example is because I, I was just listening all the time every, and I was listening to a podcast recently. And of course, I mean, this guy is like, has an Orthodox Christian sort of background. And I mean, he's describing the most uh, absurd fascist 
you know, his own imagining of Plato as this insane tyrant who wants to, you know, uh, make everything conform to geometrical ratios, you know, and so he's mm-hmm. a psychopath. Um, but there, uh, Plato in his Mino dialogue, I mean, he, why, if he believed that, why would he use the example of a slave boy to demonstrate that this slave boy actually has the ability to discover um, the solution to a problem that, you know, his master is just kind of looking on and doesn't really understand, right? He's the oligarch, Mino, and the slave boy is the one actually doubling the square. Uh, And, you know, Plato, this is a very famous uh, passage where Plato prompts the boy by asking him a series of questions which allows the light to turn on, right? Mm -hmm. Which is really the idea is the basis of the platonic approach. And I'd say the basis of a classical education. And I mean, the basis of human nature, right? In recognizing that uh, we're we're not conditioning dogs. It's not reward and punishment. It's not Aristotelian logic, which, which is all Aristotelian logic is, right? Dog goes place A. Uh, gets rewarded. Dog goes place A, gets punished. Dog knows that place A is good, place A is bad, uh, place B is bad. Logic is just, you know, a binary system. However, you know, a supercomputer it is, it's just still a series of, uh, you know, ones and zeros or, you know, reward and punishment. And a society that just trains its people based on this, um, you know, I it could say I maybe I'll say something controversial, but like I'd say that's the legalist outlook uh, when in compared to the Confucian, right, which assumes that man is inherently good, whereas the subtle difference is the legalist, which ostensibly the same goal, but assumes that man is uh, inherently bad. And so, how do you train somebody? What's the best that some if if human nature is inherently bad, what's the best that you can go for? Well, I mean, you, you can negate the bad so that people follow the rules. And if they don't follow the rules, you punish them. And if they follow the rules, they're rewarded. Again, you're, you're just training dogs at this point. Uh, but I'd say the Confucian idea, which you see expressed, I mean, in, if we switch the frame, which I think is, is fun, right? So Western version of that, Plato prompting the young slave boy, asks him a series of questions where the paradox becomes clear and the boy is able to generate the solution the light turns on and that's humanity, right? The evolution of humanity is a series of uh, lights turning on, right? And you could say that evil is really the attempt to sort of uh, dim that light at every point, right? So that they can sort of carry out their own uh, self-interest, which doesn't, you know, can't actually be dignified uh, in the light of reason. And so they have to create all these complex sophistries and things to justify that, hence the imitation, hence the psychopaths and sociopaths that are drawn to that. And, you know, all the more, where are the philosopher kings? Where are the aristocratic men that are able to intervene on that? Which is really, I guess, the question for, at least in the West, right, the civilizational crisis that we have, we can go on and on about what's right and what's good, but finally, where are the people that are supposed to be intervening on the evil that's being committed, uh, not only in the West, but that has by a small profiles, you know, oligarchy, uh, 
democracy sort of imposing its will and trying to pervert everything to sort of advance its interests. Where are the truth tellers, right? Uh, I would say, where are the educators? Okay, because uh, once again, etymology, educare, to bring forth what is within, and what is within is precisely truth, goodness, and beauty, instead of imposing a dog training precisely. Uh, you, you know that we can, uh, we, uh, Aristotle, maybe I'm a bit caricatural here and I'm not fair to him, but Aristotle is truly the dog training and Plato is the education, okay, educare, to bring forth what is within or as in the Mino, uh, the Mino or uh, Socrates in uh, the Mino was capable to bring forth what was within the boy slaves, truth, goodness, and beauty, asking him the right question so he can solve the geometrical problem. Right. And I mean, I think, I guess today there's also, there's a lot of this kind of uh, determinism, right? Where this is popular, I mean, it's becoming very eugenics, whether it's on the left side or genomics and uh, behavioral genetics and all that, there's really an attempt to sort of uh, suggest that, you know, intelligent different people are, are just naturally sort of uh, you know, have this innate talent and everybody has their talents, right? But I, the question that I have, because we're talking about the lights turning on, what prevents the light from turning on, right? Is it just that it's not there, that it can't be turned on, that the person's just a dullard, uh, which is what some of the psycho, I mean, John Rawlings Reeves, I, I, I've been doing a lot of work on this. Uh, you know, one of the founders of modern psychiatry, uh, in British psychiatry, of course, Tavistock Institute, uh, his, yeah. <laughs> basic, his basic psychiatric um, assumptions and goal was selection. How do you identify the neurotics from the non-neurotics from the higher performers so that we can get like the right people in the right position and find a place for the dollars, which he thinks are like about 10% of the population. Uh, but they don't really have, it's very Aristotelian. They don't have an idea of educare, of, of unfolding something. They have an idea of picking racehorses and you're pretty much, you know, the, the, the most you can aspire to is to, you know, pick the right horses, but it's ultimately sort of predetermined, which today is being very much, uh, I mean, it's, it's popular in pop culture and sci-fi. I mean, if we watch Netflix or Amazon Prime, I, I lost count of the number of series where it's a character or people that have been genetically modified or chemically, you know, enhanced that are superior to the non-enhanced, non-genetically modified, you know, organic natural humans, which they're, they're weaker, they're less smart. Um, so we, we very much have this. And that, so that's the question, how do we, how do we change the, the, the state right, that the, the, the character of the psychology of people, is that something that can be changed? Because I mean, we started with the idea that, uh, and I guess I'll, yeah, I'll just add, we started with the idea of the image of man, right? That the image that people have of themselves will ultimately determine the boundaries of, you know, what they're capable of, what they believe, what they're willing or ready to do. Uh, and in one of these, 
studies called the changing images of man by a Tavistock related the standard Stanford Research Institute. It's a, it's a famous paper, the changing images of man. Uh, they make the point because they're looking to shift Western civilization away from a uh, Judeo Christian industrial civilization towards a post industrial, uh, you know, kind of more pagan uh, feeling based society. And they're saying that the biggest resistance to the biggest, the change in where we encounter the greatest resistance in people, especially in therapeutic settings, are a change of identity. That's where people are most likely to sort of push back when it comes to a juncture where making the leap will require them to change their fundamental identity. And so the reason it's called the changing images of man is they're looking at how do you subtly alter what already is and to create what's more, I mean, adaptive for their purposes of imposing basically a Malthusian, you know, circular economy, which is what we're talking about. This is what the World Economic Forum is. This is what the Green New Deal and, you know, all the green uh, financial reforms are about. They want to change the image of man. So I, that seems to be the great challenge. If the light isn't turning on for certain people, is it just because they're dollars? Or, you know, what's the story? Uh, no, I, th I think that there's no one who is a dollar. I would say that some person has more talent for, for languages or for images or for sounds, okay? Uh, that, those kind of things, I can believe. But there's no... Yeah, exactly. But no one is is a complete idiot. Okay, it doesn't exist. Uh, and uh, I would say I would like to maybe to answer your question by using another way to 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 present to introduce the uh, the hexagram or the six lines. Okay, uh, there is a concept or, or three words called personality, individuality, and universal self. And when the uh, Stavistock inspired psychiatry try to change people, they ch change at the level of personality. Okay, uh, as you know, a personality comes from persona, and persona is the Latin name for the mask. That the, exactly, that the actors, the Greek actors and the, the Roman actors were wearing in the right. past to 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 amplify their voices, okay, when they are actors in the, in the, in the play. So that personality from a psychological standpoint are the voices of the people having influence us, okay? Uh, the authority figure, our parents, our teachers, our friends that were important for us and so on. So uh, the Tavistock psychology tried to change the personality, the mask, the voices that influences a certain person, but they don't go to the second stage, which is called individuality. Okay, so uh, we said that the hexagram has uh, six lines, so the personality would correspond to line one and two. The uh, individuality would correspond to line three and four. And when you have a true individuality, uh, you are a true democratic man, okay? Because often uh, individuality 
uh, is granted to you when you do your things, okay? When you are capable to say no to a voice inside you who have been given to you by an authority figure, when you are advancing in your psychological life, right? Mm. Mm. So uh, the Tavistock psychology is a very primitive one since it's a psychology that doesn't allow people to keep on the journey of the soul or to keep on the epistemological development. And the third stage, which is the universal self, of course, uh, are the last two lines, five and six, which is creativity and the ultimate desire to create more democratic and aristocratic man in order to create the city of God on earth. So, uh, Tavistock psychology definitely has been created by people not interested by the city of God on earth. Right. I mean, that was beautiful. I, I mean, there's a lot that could be said on that. In terms of our, I guess now, now we're really getting to the thick of things in terms of how our modern society is engineered, right? I think now we're actually getting to the problem, which is that, especially in modern times, I mean, I've written on this in, in recent uh, research papers and stuff like it's it's all applied behavioral science, uh, social psychology. Uh, Kurt Lewin developed uh, field theory, and uh, you know I, I forget what it, something topology, but it's all about the environment, right? And it's all about, yeah. but it's about the whole and looking at the interaction of all the parts, starting from the top, and seeing how you can calibrate and adjust things in order to change the dynamic among all the parts. But like, if, if you look at all these Tavistock people, so Kurt Lewin, the two of the first, uh, the first of their uh, journal, Human Relations, um, featured uh, Lewin's work on group dynamics, group field theory and all that. Uh, and then you have Sargent, right? Dr. William Sargent, who worked at Modesley, the uh, British, uh, military psychiatric and then later civilian psychiatric hospital. And he went around profiling all the tribes, right? All primitive tribes across the world, Zaire, uh, Haiti, voodoo tribes, uh, Christian fundamentalist preachers. And mm -hmm. his whole idea was the physiology of conversion, how faith healers, shamans, and preachers can change your behavior and beliefs. Mm -hmm. So his whole idea was looking at the physiological aspect of all these people that claim to experience mystical experiences, right? So you have like the, the voodoo and the tribal that, that I'm really bad at the, the rhythm, but you know, that was bad. Uh, and so getting the heart rate, right, to go up and creating the heightened emotional conditions in which the 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 power of the imagery and the narratives associated that with that imagery could there could be a, a cathexis right they could a catharsis cathexis they could associate a certain uh af, new state of affectation with that image right so they have this ecstasy and whatnot and the images that they have whether in their minds people dancing or whatnot are associated with that idea and so it's all, I mean, at that level, I think it's even, it potentially it's even lower than persona, right? Personality, it's, it's like pure physiological, it's, you know, a, a classier version of whipping dogs. Um, you know, you, you get them well, to dance around and play, 
you know, bongos or whatever, uh, and you give them a story uh, to go with it. And exactly that you can you can socially engineer all of society if you just encourage certain kinds of, of ritual beliefs and enforce certain images that people will have a specific affectation towards. And it's so brute force, right? So, but the question is, if people aren't to be uh, uh, conditioned by that, they need a deeper epistemological journey, a discovery of the self. And I mean, first philosopher, Thales, know thyself. I mean, he was one of the seven sages of ancient Greece. Yeah. And it's, it's technically, it's a, it's a very profound idea that even before you know yourself or whatnot, you have a self, you have a sovereign identity, you have a soul, and it is your duty and life's journey to discover who and what that is, who you are. And I'll just say I, on a funny, uh, funnier note, I, I like the uh, comedian Tim Dillon. He does a fun podcast. And he said, you can always see when you, you look at people and you can tell that they don't know who they are. They have no fucking idea who they are. And there's way too much of that. So of course, people who are not allowed to reach some sort of deeper epistemological uh, level, of course they don't know who they are. Of course it's easy to change their persona, which they think is just normal to sort of wear this mask or wear that mask. And Absolutely, and they don't have the other two deeper layers. Yeah. And when you don't have the two other deeper layers, uh, new mass can be enforced upon you and you don't have that sovereignty precisely given by the individuality layer and the universal self layer that would make you capable to exit the cave since our subject is that exiting the cave, right? Amen, yeah. So exiting the cave, uh, there's no absolute answer, okay? But one possible answer to that question or to that quest is that you have to go deeper in yourself. And I use the concept of individuality and universal self as the two deeper layers of yourself. Because your personality is part of self, but it's only the most superficial layer on which outside people can manipulate you but they won't be capable to do so if you have the second layers called individuality and if you have the third one called universal self it's absolutely impossible to manipulate you the only thing that is someone wishing to harm you can do to you is to kill you but he won't be capable to manipulate you right on the so the, the second one, I mean the third one is probably, it's probably it's a whole journey of itself, right? Uh, but yeah. let's, we'll well I used to thaw out the second one here, individuality. Um, I feel like this is where the dialogos comes in, right? The dialectic dialogos. It's it's a dialogue. It's two voices. Exactly. And there's an interesting. Uh, there's an interesting. Researcher, psychologist, uh, John Verbeke, I believe. Uh, he's been on Jordan Peterson, but I mean, they're rediscovering. I mean, we know this, but it's, it's great to see it being done in an academic formal setting that the basis, the, 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 the baseline for reason is dialogos. And it's not, and the baseline for education 
it's not a treatise. It's not a teacher just talking at the students uh, like they're writing on blank slates and telling them this is this, this is category A, this is category B. Nobody learns like that. That's that's just brainwashing. That's conditioning. It's dialogos where you have a, a counterpoint and you, you there's a dialogue between the person, their inner voice, we could their individuality, their sovereign self, and the the the, the various um, stimulus or thoughts right we have a million thoughts we know they're not all right we all have crazy thoughts all the time We're like well that's a crazy thought some people have more or less trouble distinguishing what are the good thoughts for the bad thoughts xyz reason you're a doctor i'm not you probably have a better understanding than that than i do but so the dialectic seems like the first path to discovering one's sovereign self is I mean, they talk about, especially in a spiritual sense, listening to your inner voice and sort of what is your inner voice actually telling you? And can it teach you anything that you don't know, which is a paradox, right? Like, or you may be, do, or you're doing something that you know is wrong and you, you know it's wrong, you still do it. So there, there's two different drives there. And the inner voice is able to inform you that this is probably not a good idea. Uh, I mean, you know, the ego is like, eh, shut up. But uh, so what happens when people start to listening, start to listen? I mean, this is my way of framing it, but listening to their inner voice, can it teach them things that they, does it know things that they don't, right? Is that not the dialectical process? Like, how do we make discoveries? It's, it's still us. Nobody is, unless we believe in an elect, we believe in an Aristotelian priesthood, where divine mysteries are being imparted, uh, you know, we join uh, some Freemasonic cult or university, you know, frat house or yeah. whatever, and uh, they incrementally sort of hand us down knowledge and mysteries. If it's not that, then it's going to have to come from this process from within. And is that not dialogos? Is that not the first approximation to uh, exiting the cave? Exactly. And I would say that it's the favorite tool of the fake democratic man, okay, to invent a sort of uh, a fake hierarchy uh, mm -hmm. that, that would flatter your ego and uh, that would make you feel that you, has, you have been chosen to be part of that uh, hierarchy, that fake hierarchy, and, uh, and precisely to bring you for further away from the true epistemological development or your true journey of the soul. Right. Yeah. And I mean, in modern ter I mean, there's so we could go down a real rabbit hole with what we just said, right? Oh, um, you know, I was you just, have you have meters and meters of books in libraries about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, we know it's a thing. I mean, whether it's the, you know, most extreme sort of satanic uh, types, all oligarchical uh, structures as well, or, you know, the church of Scientology, which I, I listened yeah. to interesting one, but the uh, Hubbard, he modeled his idea of the levels of secret knowledge that you ascend to uh, based off of Crowley, right? Aleister Crowley and his, his lodges, right? His satanic lodges. 
of course named you know the agape lodge and the this lodge of course of course, of course. I, i'm happy you mentioned crowley because he's the absolute ancestors of all those uh, of all that madness in the west since the last century yeah so outside of that secret knowledge i mean so that what well, i guess that the reality is or here here's a way to look at it in a sense i was thinking evil is is really at the end of it's skipping steps in the sense that the whole thing is about secret knowledge is sure i'll do this i'll submit and follow this set of rules and i'm going to be handed down these mysteries no there's no there's no inner work right there's no inner effort there's no dialogos it's it's really something that's being imparted uh to you by the the, the gods right by the the oh gosh the uh by an authority hermetic, the hermetic cults right hermes yeah. who is yeah. the the imparter of of divine wisdom they love that stuff right yes uh, by an authority that would ask you something in return uh that might not be very clear at the beginning right and i mean god we, can, we there's so many dimensions to that whether you know the the confusion and the mystery the mystery is even in in modern behavioral science you know i was watching a guy um cialdini i forget it was david cialdini michael cialdini uh, uh and he he you know they've done big you know uh, human behavior studies uh, and about success in business and yeah. one of the things that he said was very uh, important to getting reciprocation from people was mystery was an element mm -hmm. of like there's this thing and i'm going to tell you this you know you, however the better you the clever you are where you make it look like it's not obvious what you're doing you just kind of provoke uh curiosity people are more likely to break profile they're more likely to take a chance because now they want to know um but also just authority right the a lot of behavioral science whether it's the in group out group it's the uh experts right that expert class the peer reviewed science quote unquote right it's it's consensus and they always i love how the articles these days they always say scientists say or according to experts or most recent most recent research says it's really just consensus and groupthink which they're trying to frame as a scientific argument but it has the same sort of myth mythology to it right that there's this expert class you're the plebs you don't know and if you want to know uh, you just have to follow the rules and do what you're told so if yeah. never the prompting of that light turning on it's always the external prodding and if you do follow this stuff here are the good things that happen to the you know the good people and if you don't here are the bad things that happen uh to the people who don't play ball and i mean that's a yeah. lot of it this is tribal affinity as well these are the fake democratic men um and women that yes and i i would like to say here that we are at a very delicate juncture okay because the 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 border between the animal kingdom and the divine kingdom is precisely the two kind of democratic man the fake one and the true one, okay mm. 
And when you were speaking of the, uh, the peer reviews or the consensus, you have peer review and consensus too in the divine kingdom with the true democratic man and the aristocratic man. Right. But except that, that those people are doing the peer review or the consensus uh, animated with truth, goodness, and beauty. Okay, so it's not it's not oligarchical. It's open and it's a true process of sharing of knowledge and of debate and of dialecticon dialogos. Right. And for the fake one, they would imitate that. They would use the same words, but they are not animated by beauty, goodness, and truth. Okay, level four, five, six of the upper trigrams or of epistemic so they would have a a front that would deceive many people if not most people mm -hmm. but it would be something very close very uh for insiders if i may say so yeah so I mean, not to leave people uh, hanging. So, what would you say on on so the universal self? Where does that fit in? Based on how does the universal self intervene on the 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 very challenging situation that we're describing? Yes, the universal self. When you were talking of the fact that when you are confused, that there's a voice that will take that will make its presence uh, obvious, okay? You were speaking of the individuality, the second layer. The universal self is absolute silence, okay? Uh, it's, it's the deepest experience of meditation. Hmm. Where you feel a abysmal oceanic silence inside, but not as a whole, H-O-L-E, but as a presence, mm. the cosmic presence, the divine presence, it's the universal self. That's why I said that, of course, when you reach to the individuality, it's already not bad at all, because it's very difficult to sway someone with an individuality, but you can, you can do it under extreme circumstance. But someone with a universal self, you cannot sway him if he thinks that you're in the wrong. You can only kill him. Right. And I guess, you know what? I mean, in a sense, that's what we'll call them the masters of the universe, the oligarchy, uh, whatever we'd like to call them. Um, right. Because Yeah. I mean, our, this show is called Escaping the Brave New World. And it was inspired by, you know, I was thinking about... Uh, Aldous Huxley, his Brave New World, and how it was really a ripoff of Shakespeare, in the sense that Shakespeare's last play, The Tempest, yeah, um, you know, that's where Brave New World comes from, right? There's, there's absolutely a new world, and evil always has the tendency. I mean, they say this that evil doesn't really create anything; it just it just perverts the good. It latches on and tries to sort of make it into its own image. Yeah. Um, and that's really what Huxley did with A Brave New World, where he's like, let's imagine, like, like a new island, blank slate, now imagine this instead, right? And he just kind of works out all, it's away from all the uh, typical, um, 
proprieties and, you know, expectations of how society is supposed to look like. You're free to imagine this new, brave new world. Uh, and it's just pure evil, right? Um, and, but he has a quality of imagination to it, which is what makes it compelling. And the imagery uh, is what allows to sort of sink into the psyche and the imaginations of people, which as, uh, as, as Shelley said in his defense of poetry, you know, he's talking about the importance of poetry and art. It's the ground zero for uh, morality, for truth, for knowledge. It's the imagination. And because that's where any new concept, whether in science or in art, it first takes root in the imagination. And then it can be cultivated and developed, right? Like a scientific idea before it's, it's formalized into like it's, it's a, you know, a perfectly closed system. It's just an idea. It's a hypothesis and it has to be tested out. That happens in the imagination. It's not a, it, it doesn't happen as a, you know, deductive process. So evil, it makes sense that evil will go and try to pervert the imagination, which is, I think, if we want to understand a lot of modern pop culture, right, and popular entertainment, um, I don't think it's, it's uh, too harsh to call it evil in that it's very much working on the imagination, which seems more subtle, right? Nobody's getting hurt, no harm, no foul, which is what a lot of people like to say today. Not sure that's so true. Um, but if you zoom out, right, and take a more macro view, you see that the art and the culture of a civilization, I mean, you can, you can really see the decline and fall of the civilizations based on the quality and character of ideas that are in the culture. And I mean, I feel like we could go on. It'd be interesting, you know, what's art like in a largely democratic dominate Plato's category society, right? Or in an oligarchical uh, or in democratic where there's, I mean, we could go on. Um, well, it's very easy. All the dystopian stuff that you can find on Netflix now is, uh, typical of the democratic society. Yeah, and it's very sensual, right? It's because it's based on opinion. You know, it's yes. useful, right? You, you've laid out all these definitions. It's very much anchored in the animal kingdom. So yes. it's very much anchored on pleasure and pain. Um, there's a great quote from uh, the movie Hellraiser, pleasure yeah. and pain, indistinguishable. Um, kind of cool, but uh, depends how you read it. But that's very much the modern culture, pleasure and pain, indistinguishable. And um, so art also has a, a serious place to play, a uh, role to play in how it's going to shape the imagination for the, so that it, we strive, our imaginations are striving towards the, the upper trigram, right? Towards the divine kingdom. All that to say the evil are the people who will always try to pervert that in some way. And you'll, these are members of the oligarchical class or their brain trusts, right? They're Algis Huxley's and their HG Wells who are a bit more creative. So they can use their talents, but they, they choose to use it for evil, uh, which is why I think intelligence and IQ score, sure. Okay, you have smart people. What if they choose to do evil? Uh, it's not very useful, right? <laughs> yes, because, uh, uh, yes, and I would like to add that when I was speaking of 
of uh, the uh, the personality uh, we can uh, also another concept to enrich the uh, hexagram or the two trigrams line one can be called vitality okay uh, because that's the that's the senses perception it's the the pleasure of the sense and so on so uh, in a in a more neutral mode uh, rather than to call it hedonism uh, which entails a certain judgment we can call it vitality mm. and on the second level the plutocratic man as i said in the beginning He's a bit better or more advanced epistemologically than the democratic man that because he has a certain self-mastery. That second level can be called intellect. Mm. And the fake democratic man, which is a third line, can be called psyche. Okay. A psyche is the old word meaning a not developed soul. And it's precisely from psyche that you have the word psychology. Okay, because psychology, according to true philosophy, is how you will bring your underdeveloped soul or your not completely open soul to be completely open, okay, or completely developed. Mm. So, uh, uh, why I'm going in that? It's because it's related to what you said uh, two minutes ago that you can be very brilliant intellectually, but it doesn't mean that you are in the divine kingdom, okay? Because the function of the intellect is at the second level of the animal kingdom. Mm, interesting. That's, well, that makes sense, and that explains a lot. Uh, you know, in terms of when you see there are certain people who have talent, uh, I think Aldous Huxley is a perfect example, or H.G. Wells, right? Like, they're literary men, they're... Uh, sort of aristocratic. Um, they like ideas. They have very strong conceptual uh, abilities, but they marshal it for something very, um, very dark. Right? It's not. It's not for goodness, truth, and beauty. It's something else. Exactly. Exactly. And the mastery are uh, even more dangerous, as you rightly said, maybe an hour ago. The fake democratic man. Okay, because a fake democratic man they are at the level of the psyche okay so the psyche is an incomplete soul but those men have spiritual moments okay they, they have access to that dimension we call the soul right but uh, in an inchoate manner uh, so uh, so they're not true democratic man they're not yet in the divine kingdom but they have glimpses of that they have inchoate uh, development so because of those glimpses they appear impressive for the plutocratic man and the democratic man and, and their prestige is really from those glimpses of spiritual experiences that's a very good point um yeah and it opens up I mean, we could we could go on, but just quickly, I was thinking about, uh, yeah, so let's say, for example, I'd say the Timocratic or fake Timocratic, let's see where you place it. Uh, I had a good discussion in a previous podcast uh, with uh, my poet friend, Daniel Leach, and he was talking about, for example, Rome, 
which in many ways was an imitation of ancient Greece. We, we could potentially yeah. say that. Um, yes. And the art was largely imitation. There was, there was little that was actually original, um, but it was also a lot of the, the sculpture, right, is, is more static than its, its Greek counterpoint. It's much more lifeless, uh, very close, very imitates, resembles very closely the originals, but somehow uh, a bit more lifeless. But there's also the opulence, right? Like we have the image, I have the image of like the Roman emperors and, you know, they have their music, they have their lavish feasts, they have, you know, the gilded uh, walls and cornices and everything. Um, but it's very, it's sensual, it's very superficial. There's a form, right? There's a sort of, there's a formal uh, quality to it. You can't say there's not a, a, an artistry to it. Uh, but it lacks a conceptual depth, right? It lacks uh, a, a sense of deeper meaning. Um, and this always leads to decay. Raz. Exactly. Because they're not the inner source of beauty, goodness, goodness and truth, okay? Because uh, for them to truly uh, be a shining society, they need to be in contact with the source so they can imitate as you said a more advanced epistemologically speaking society or culture or civilization but if themselves they did not have a contact with the origin with the source uh, it would be quite obvious for someone having a contact with that source yeah which I guess is the best defense, right? Because I, I can always hear, or I hear the the counterpoint voices, you know, okay, well, how do you know what the real thing is? Or, you know, who are you to say, you, you know, what the real thing is, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, no, if, if you really have done, are in the uh, habit of engaging in this dialectical process with yourself uh, and challenging your own ideas, then, and, and in touch with that source, then you can see when people are imitating that, like they seem to say things the right way and they use the right words, but it's not quite the same in the same way that a lot of like the, the Roman imitations of the Greek uh, sculptures, which you could say, hey, they're following the rules, they're doing the same thing. And yet, why doesn't it look exactly the same? There's, 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 some, there's a soul lacking in the work which is not something you can, you can really imitate if you don't yourself uh, have it. And yes, that poses all sorts of, of, of deep questions, but to jump, I guess, like what about the upper layer, right? Like I'm thinking, what is the art of the, uh, yes. the aristocratic uh, philosophical uh, level of playful exploration. I mean, I think the Renaissance, right? The Italian golden Renaissance. I think, uh, I mean, the wonderful, the song, the, the landscapes, right? The classical Chinese landscapes. Uh, it, it doesn't really get better than that in terms of the, the sublimity and the, the quality of soul that emerges from the matter, right? The, yes. the, the material and the immaterial are not at war. They're perfectly in harmony and they unfold a great amount of depth. Whereas in the lower, you could say maybe that the Timocrat or fake Timocratic, I mean, uh, and below, 
there's the Apollonian and the Dionysian that's always warring, right? You have the strict formalism, which today we could like uh, to tie back to modern times, you have the conservatives, right? Who just kind of want to go the typical conservatives. I don't want to whitewash everybody here, but it's like, let's just go back to this better time and everybody just has to follow the rules and, you know, then things will work out. And then the other side is the Dionysian, which is like, you know, screw the rules. The rules are a bit uh, strict, right? In that they don't necessarily make you feel like a, a, a full human being, but they go the opposite, right? They go to the sort of the romantic heresy of like, I'll go with what I feel and just, you know, let the unbridled feelings sort of guide you. But it's not really the, the, the inner voice or the deeper soul or the source. It's really the surface level uh, impulse and uh, sensations, which are very fleeting. Well, that's a Kool-Aid that the plutocrats impose upon those people. Yeah, there's a lot of affectation. And I guess, yes. and you have the timeless, because you like to use this formula. In, in, there's a timelessness when, the, when true beauty, goodness, uh, and virtue meet, there's a timelessness, right? Like it doesn't matter if times change, the material and the immaterial uh, quality of, let's say, a song dynasty landscape or a Renaissance sculpture. Uh, or, I mean, the Divine Comedy, or Homer's Iliads, or yeah. the Three Kingdoms, right? It's not going away, no matter, because there's this perfect marriage of timeless, of time and timelessness. And yes. that's what the lower kingdom cannot, uh, you can't get that if you're just stuck in the lower kingdom. And so you see exactly. dreams. Yeah, but that brings us to the famous Kairos okay k-a-i-r-o-s for the people who don't know that word so as you just said dave kairos is precisely that precious moment when timeless and time meet or when eternity and time meet or when the animal meets the divine okay mm. Mm. for real and that's uh, when you were speaking of the aristocratic man or level and the philosophical man, I did not interrupt you because it was appropriate. Okay. However, I beg to differ that it's not there the problem. The problem is the transition from the fake democratic man to the true one. Okay. Because once someone is in the divine kingdom, we don't need to worry for that person. Okay. He's in good hands. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, in his inner psychology and in his entourage, okay? Because if you're a true democratic man, you will stop spontaneously to see the people from the animal kingdom, or you, or you will meet them, but they will not be capable to influence you. You wouldn't be influencing them to a certain extent. Right. So, so the two... Um, vital nexus that we will have to work upon for a civilizational change is the question how to uplift the fake democratic man to be a true one, especially that the fake democratic man often, in, he will be successful in life, okay? So if he's successful, often, not always, of course, but often, and if he's successful in life, 
why should he listen to you? Right, right. And um, well, I mean, I, I, in, in the Plato's Republic, he actually talks about the, uh, how the democratic man becomes a uh, oligarch, actually, right? He does talk about the transitions, which is interesting. Uh, but he talks about like the children, right? So in a sense, technically what you're saying is right, where, okay, the democratic man is not, uh, you know, is kind of impervious to sort of being sucked down per se, if he's really truly a democratic man. But then there's always the offspring. And depending on what happens in the society, I mean, this is just the reality, right? You can have uh, a sagely person. It doesn't mean their uh, sons or daughters are going to be sages. And I mean, that makes sense because it is free will and there is a, a an individual journey. You can't fake it and it's not gonna be handed down to you hereditarily. It can be handed down as a tradition and an image that you aspire to, that you have some close intimate uh, relationship with, thereby making yes. it a lot uh, easier for your identity to assimilate that. Whereas, you know, if you're not a Timocrat, you don't come from a, you know, illustrious family or something, it can be much more foreign, which gets us back to the changing images of man. Therefore, you're going to have to, to make a leap in your identity if you're actually going to, uh, you know, gravitate from, from one level to the other. But I would say, and I asked the question genuinely sort of earlier, like, what do we do? How do we resolve, untangle this knot when there are these different uh, these various profiles and, and character types warring. Um, and I think art is really, and culture is really like the, the, the middle ground for per, perhaps, per, potentially, uh, we're thought experiment here, um, dealing with the fake, the Timocrat, fake Timocrat boundary condition. And this is what Schiller talks about that, you know, and, and Shelley too, that it's through the imagination. And Schiller talks about through play. Right. You have to be playful with the imagination and provoke and prompt that light turning on uh, and pre present uh, compelling images and metaphors that will naturally awaken what's already there. Right. Because even if the person is uh, on a degenerate path. Right. I mean, we have we all have we've all, we, there are a million stories of, you know, addicts, alcoholics, whatnot you know, that go from one life to another. So we can't say that it doesn't happen. It happens all the time. Uh, but one of the key roles of art, at least in a, in a healthy society, is that it's a way to cultivate the imagination and to plant seeds that can, can blossom and, and, and bear fruit. Uh, absolutely. No, I think that you have the, the, the core answer by imagination and to plant seeds, okay? Because I would like to come back to the, to the children of the Timocratic man. If I remember, uh, Plato said that if the children of a Timocratic man, a man motivated by honor, justice, see their father mistreated by the city, uh, by uh, degrading him or by killing him because of xyz uh, his son might think that there's no there's no usefulness to be guided by honor and justice it's better to have a lot of wealth 
in order to protect my family. Okay, so yeah. his his son will become a plutocrat, a, a plutocratic man, be, w motivated by wealth and power, because he saw his father degraded by the city, even if his father was motivated by justice and honor. Okay, so the son concluded that there's no usefulness in justice and honor. Yeah, they, they associate that which has worth with which those things which can, uh, you know, bear riches rather than actual uh, fruit, right? Of exactly. Wisdom and but, if, and, but if the father had the, 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 the leisure, the time, the energy and the desire to put some seed in his son or daughter, as you said, for beauty, goodness and truth, uh, maybe the woes of the family would not push the son and the daughter to conclude that um, physical wealth and power are better tools uh, to protect the family than honor and justice. Right. Okay. So once again, we go back to planting the seeds for education, educare, to bring forth uh, beauty, goodness, and truth and imagination because uh and once again uh, i would say something that might appear not to have a link with but there's a link we were discussing of the roman empire okay and with the transition from the fake democratic man to the true one and you were speaking of art and imagination the roman were excellent architects okay they were perfectly capable to to make aqueducts, uh, uh, coliseum, uh, amphitheaters, yeah. and so on. But those stuff are in the order of mathematics, okay? Uh, and not necessarily of higher beauty as the dynamic statues of the Greek. Absolutely. That's, um, that's a very fine, beautiful and subtle distinction. And um, we've rectified a lot of names here. I, I like the way we've, we've put names on different things that um, some of them are more subtle, especially in, in the very um, binary debates that we have here between like in the West, at least conservative art versus liberal art. I mean, there's nothing worse than this kind of banality um, mm -hmm. when the real issue is timelessness and how is that timelessness expressed in any age you know in time in time the famous kairos once again yeah how, how is that expressed in time which necessarily yeah. means that that uh it will have its own character specific to the age in which it is born because the eternal is expressing itself in time so it will take on certain elements or character of that time but it will not be hostage to opinion right it will not be hostage to a purely ephemeral um, assessment of reality. It will actually speak uh, to truth, right, to beauty. Yes, and I would like to, to give a very practical example. The golden number is only 1.61, okay? So uh, it's, 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 it's a pure abstract principle of the divine kingdom, right. but it's, it's reflected by a specific number in time 1.61 right okay 
yeah, and I mean, uh, and what you do with that 1.61 is unbounded and yet is infinite. And yet it can always be bounded, uh, you know, whether it's going to be a Renaissance, um, you know, basilica or chapel uh, that's, you know, perfect resonance for, for the singing voice and resonating with the singing voice where the microcosm and the macrocosm there, you see it meet, right? And, mm-hmm. and, in a, in a very um, spectacular way. Um, yeah, there's, there's infinite variation and possibility, which is, I guess, that's the real takeaway that that timeless journey, right? When the soul actually takes on a timeless journey, that's actually real freedom because you're, you're free from the uh, temporal conditions per se, or the changing conditions, or you can resolve your higher identity and and place in the universe and uh basically truth with the moment in which you're in right those two can be resolved they don't have to be at war and then you're free to create right exactly then you're free to generate uh an authentic vision for society right the statesmen are able to actually think about where is their uh, society going in the next hundred years Right. Absolutely. In the next thousand years versus what we have uh, today in the West, right? This free trade uh, type dogma stuff. And well, now it's a lot worse. Well, but it, the free trade made it possible where it's just sort of individual freedom, very much a democratic society, right? Opinion, uh, what, whatever is in fashion, you know, what people like, what they desire. Uh, that's what's going to be consumed. The economy is going to be based on that. And it's a free market, you know, everybody just has at it. But the result is that uh, there is no vision. And as the proverb says, uh, where there is no vision, the people perish. Yes, well, I would like to to introduce a very classical uh, opposition between two words, which is freedom and license, okay? Uh, What is offered nowadays by the oligarchical vision or offer, if you want, it's not freedom, it's license. Meaning it's, it's, it's fake freedom because the person having the impression to be free uh, is not in contact with his individuality and his universal self, which are the layers that would grant him the energy to be truly free because that person would have the tools of power to be responsible. And when you have the tools of power to be responsible, you are truly free. And uh, you, because once again, I want to come back to the three technical level of the animal kingdom, vitality, intellect, and psyche. At those three levels, you can be uh, uh, manipulated, controlled, uh, have things imposed upon you by people more powerful than you, okay? Yeah. But when you get to beauty, goodness, and truth, the true democratic, uh, aristocratic, and philosophical man, uh, you are in contact with the sources of true freedom because you will get the tools of powers. I repeat myself, but that is the according to me, and I don't, I don't forget the theme of our discussion tonight how to exit the cave, 
if you want to exit the cave, you need to reach to the tools of powers that when you make you capable to be responsible, then you will be truly free and not uh, in the state of license, which is a fake freedom. Right. And I mean, the four ever insightful, uh, when I was reviewing uh, Plato's discussion, right, democracy, the thing that stood out is he said, yeah, they, they're going to say it's the most free society. They're going to say it's the most diverse society. Literally, that's what he's saying. Oh, la, la. Oh. It's just going to be, yeah, it's the best. Like, there's everything, people, you know, there's all sorts of different things going on. Uh, you know, it's one great, uh, bizarre, free market, marketplace of ideas, sure. Yeah. Um, but, you know, where is the standard for goodness, truth, and beauty? That's where you see the fangs come out. Because when you start to talk about that, uh, you're a fascist, right? You're, you're a dictator. Um, and so, but ultimately, that is the ultimate dictatorship, right? This is the brave new world where exactly. you get people to enslave themselves. In a brave new world, you're free to create your own concentration camp with no tears. That's what Huxley says in his, in his famous lecture, uh, The Ultimate Revolution, um, which is that people will be enslaved by their passions, by their vices, by their pleasures. And the most perfect system of control is not one in which, you know, you have this one central tyrant sort of, though that can happen, uh, you know, boots on the ground and, and sort of whipping everybody into shape. Uh, it's really where there's the, the tyranny of the self, right? of everybody sort of just trying to gratify their own uh, animal kingdom desires with no idea whatsoever of, you know, any greater uh, bearing of, you know, what their life actually means, what, you know, is the relationship of these emotions and passions to everything else in the universe. And so people become enslaved and that becomes the ultimate dictatorship that becomes the ultimate concentration camp because it's 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 chosen people are freely choosing it and so you, it's it's a lot less difficult to enforce because and you're going to encourage it what the oligarchy is going to do is encourage as much uh, and this, i love the discussions of psychedelics you know like you're you're in, able to create your own reality you know, turn on, tune in, drop out, uh, video games. Video games, exactly. Uh, I mean, there's a whole like civilization of uh, young men that just play video games and whatnot, and they live in that. But it's absolutely all, this is this is the concentration camp. That's the real dictatorship. Um, so, if people actually want to, I guess that's where we get a sense, an intimation of truth and the the higher. Uh, divine kingdom in that we know what it's we can we can start by what it's not we know it's not a dictatorship of the senses and the passions and the vices and that no exactly. free or happy if they just uh, do that and in an imperial system in an oligarchical system uh, a, a full of democratic men um, it's all encouraged so that people essentially uh, function with the vision of the flesh, but never with the vision of the intellect, never with anything beyond uh, what they can immediately touch, taste, hear, see, or smell.
Exactly. And I, I, I would like once again uh, to remind that the intellect is not so high. Eh? It's only the second level corresponding right. to the plutocratic man. Okay. The easy way to remember the lower trigram is the acronym VIP. Okay. V for vitality, I for intellect, and P for the psyche. The psyche being the uh, inchoate soul. And remind people and, the top above that is? Uh, uh, above that is beauty, goodness, and truth. Okay, the upper trigram. So, and it's and then it's and it's amusing why I created the the, the acronym VIP because that's absolutely the fantasy of the ego. Okay, because all ego is a VIP. Okay, right. a very important person. So, in the animal kingdom, uh, that VIP and and I like it because it's not judgmental. Okay, because. Uh, let's be frank, when we are speaking of democratic man, plutocratic and fake democratic, we are giving judgments. And uh, I, I'm not shy of it, but uh, there is a judgment. But when we speak of vitality, intellect and psyche, uh, it's only a description of that level. Right. Okay. And there's nothing wrong with uh, vitality, nothing wrong with intellect and nothing wrong with psyche. But what is wrong is to stay there and not to keep on the epistemological journey to beauty, goodness, and truth, precisely. Because when you are in the divine kingdom, the animal doesn't disappear because our body is still here, okay? The animal is still there, but the animal will be guided by beauty, goodness, and truth, and not by external voices imposed upon the animal. Absolutely. And I mean, just to say it, to speak on your idea of, you know, uh, casting judgment. I mean, we started with Confucius's rectification of names. Yeah. Being able to call things by their name is perfectly fine. And especially whether it's in a, you know, a clinical setting, a medical uh, setting or a philosophical uh, problem or disease, right, that needs to be treated. You can't really solve the problem if you can't put a name on it. Yeah, exactly. And I would like to have to mention an author because before I forget, okay. there's a, an author named E. Michael Jones, E for Eugene, Eugene Michael Jones, okay. who wrote, I think in 2000, a brilliant book. Uh, the title is uh, Sexual Liberation and Political Control. Okay. Okay. And it's a brilliant social, philosophical, psychological analysis precisely on the oligarchical manipulation upon the people, pushing them to license rather than helping them in their natural epistemological journey towards beauty, goodness, and truth. Right. That would bring them to true freedom and license. But of course, the oligarchs are not interested by that, because if people have the powers, the tools of powers to be truly free, well, uh, the oligarch would have uh, less slaves, of course. Absolutely. And I mean, the, the catch is because some people might sort of throw out a label that there's some sort of like authoritarian uh you know bend here but it's that really from the standpoint of the individual only the individual can discover themselves right like we we've talked about we mentioned 
you know, there's people who, as Tim Dillon said, you can look at them and you can see that they don't know who they are. I mean, nobody else can tell them who they are. They have to discover that on their own. And that's something that they can only do of their own free will. So in that sense, people are free. You know, they're, they're, they're totally free to make that journey. And I guess in that sense, we can say the things that are bad, that are evil and ugly, uh, you know, to invert the categories here, are the things that prevent you from freely making that journey of the soul. And, you know, as Thaley said, know thyself. And in that way, getting some intimation of the greater universal self, right, which we can never know perfectly, but only less imperfectly, uh, which will always come by virtue of our ability to uh, investigate uh, ourselves and to have that dialectic with ourselves. The things that stop us from doing that, whether it's just responding to immediate impulse, uh, being prompted uh, by, you know, things that pervert the imagination and sort of inspire uh, destructive behaviors or ideas. I mean, those are the bad things. Those are the opposite of the uh, goodness, truth, and beauty are not those things, right? I mean, that's, that, that's the easy, that's the, that's the first approximation, right? If we can get there as a society, right, we can, we can admit that, you know, there's such thing as ugliness, there's such thing as injustice, and there's such thing as bad, then necessarily there must be good, there must be beauty, uh, and there must be truth. Yes. It's a long journey. I mean, that's the history of, of civilization. Is this yes. And I would say that I'm not shy to suggest very uh, practical solutions, okay? Uh, I would like to say to everyone, listen to more classical music. Mm. Uh, even if you never... You have never been introduced to classical music by your family, your friends. Listen to something classical. Listen to some Mozart, listen to some Bach, listen to some Beethoven, Chopin, some operas maybe. Uh, uh, I feel that music is something more, more accessible to everyone, okay? Because I would like to say, read Plato, okay? But maybe reading Plato is more difficult or read Schiller. Uh, but if you don't want to read Plato or to read Schiller, listen to some classical music. Uh, and Confucius and both Plato, I mean, really emphasize yes. the, the importance and function of music. Absolutely. And I wasn't even going to go here, but I mean, I've been thinking a lot about this. Difference between classical music and pop music, long story short. Um, pop music is basically, it's an imitation Right. If you if you look at classical music, you have a refrain, you have a chorus in poetry, you classical poetry, you have rhyming. Right. You have all these things in pop music. Fast forward. They're applying the formulas. Right. You, you always have that rhyme. You always have that refrain that always comes back. Uh, but and it's just running loops. Mm. And it's just the, it's just the pure formula. And it's it's the affectation. Uh, yes. It's just sparking. It's putting you in a trance. With that, that's the basic idea of trance: is you're you're put in an altered state. Whether it's just a 
right? That's just a simple version. Or, you know, Katy Perry, right? You're hot when you're cold. Yes, when you're no, whatever. Um, it's really the same stuff. Whereas in classical music, and there's no development. So that's the, that's the baseline. In, in, in pop music, it's, it's the affectation. It's the, the loops of, of keeping you in that uh, trance state for a moment. And then it's gone. And then you go back to normal life. It's over until you decide to escape once more. So it really, it really uh, sort of uh, creates a divide in every person. On the other hand, classical music involves development. And you could say both spiritual and technical, right? There's, there's the wedding of both. There's rhyme. There's, there's, an, uh, there's an opening theme, right? A Bach theme is like, uh, you know, two, three, four notes. But then how that theme is developed um, imaginatively, right? And with great rigor uh, to make that development as rich and thorough and in-depth as possible, that's where the real beauty, the, the, the depth or the truth uh, and the, the elevating sublime quality uh, emerges as your mind is challenged to see how that initial idea, that seed, that musical seed, uh, seed fully yes. comes to fruition. And that you're there with the composer to to in 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 spirit to follow the fruition of that idea from you know a little seed into a beautiful flower or garden or symphony. Yeah, yeah. Because if if the seed of your soul wants to go beyond the psyche, uh, be inspired by a music that is complete rather than an incomplete music yes and we i mean brahms's fourth symphony is what's leading us led us into this discussion for anybody who'll be listening that's uh that's our intro i i would recommend uh listen to some brahms listen to brahms's fourth symphony performed by longler yes 44 uh ideally version um but I think that's actually some great advice. And I think that's actually a, a great place to end our conversation. Absolutely. Listen to classical music would be our last advice for tonight. Absolutely, it's great advice. Uh, so I really wanna thank you, Quan, for joining us. Uh, thank you for the fine discussion. And uh, thank you everybody for listening. So we'll be back with a new episode shortly. Thank you. Bye-bye, everyone.